Hope y'all are doing well. We are studying through the Bible, the entire Bible together, reading through, I should say. Um, You'll see some people with this particular book. If you don't have one, you can just walk back there to the info table and grab one. And this is just a Bible reading plan. You can see that it's just kind of empty. So it tells you at the top of every page what four selections to read from the Bible that day. And then if you read the entire thing all the way through um, each day, you'll have read the whole Bible. And so what we're doing together as a church is we're reading this. So... um, Each month, as there's four selections, we pick one of those books and we preach through it. And so this particular month, we're in the book of Proverbs. So we're preaching through the the second half of the book of Proverbs. So if you want one of these, just pick it up off the info table. It's yours to keep forever. Give out as many as you want. We've got plenty. Um, But we're reading through the book of Proverbs today out of one of the four books that we're reading through this month. And as we're reading through it, we're, we're studying through the book of Proverbs. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Proverbs. Um... If you uh, don't necessarily read the Proverbs very much, if it's just kind of the place where you stick your papers because it's in the middle of your uh, Bible, um, it's actually a pretty unique book uh, comparative to most, to most uh, books in the Bible. So what, what we're going to do is I'll, I'll explain kind of its uniqueness, if you will. Um, I'm going to pray um, and then we'll jump in. But before I pray, I want to read one particular text that kind of sets the tone for us um, and what, what we're going to be talking about today in the book of Proverbs. Uh, normally... We just pick a book of the Bible and we just preach through that book of the Bible for about 10 or 12 verses. And then the next week we go to that next verse and then keep going. And by the end of 15 weeks or 90 weeks or however long that book of the Bible is, uh, we preach that book and then we just go to the next. Um, But the Proverbs are a little bit different if you've ever read them. Uh, Most sentences don't necessarily string together in one idea. Instead, it's just kind of one sentence and then the next sentence, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the one above it. It's just short uh, proverbs, if you will, no pun intended, to, uh, to tell you something about life. So um, the way you kind of study the Proverbs is you find all the texts in it that have something to do with a particular topic and look at it, which is the way we're going to be doing that today in, in the book of Proverbs. So let me read Proverbs 22, chap- chapter 22, verse 4, and it will be our, uh, our, our verse that we use kind of a springboard into all of what we're going to look at. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And, and, and some texts will, will say it this way. The reward for humility is the fear of the Lord and riches and honor and life. So today we're going to be looking at the idea of humility. What does humility biblically in the Proverbs mean? And what, what are some ways that we can think about it? So last week we looked at speech. Today we're looking at humility. And again, the entire goal as we look at any particular topic in the Bible is not for you to just get better at that particular thing. Um, Non-Christians can just become more humble. So Christians pursuing humility, we're doing it for the purpose and the glory of Christ in order to become more Christ-like. So Christian humility is what we're talking about today. So I'm going to pray and we'll jump in uh, and talk about humility, which I know everybody's excited about now, right? Like, oh, great, humility. Um, Anyway, I'm just kidding. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Um, where we can look at a tough topic. We know that uh, Christ is humble and we want to be more Christ-like. And so I pray for us all as we look at this, um, God, that you would come now and by a special measure of your grace by the Holy Spirit, impart to us understanding and impart to us a deep desire to want to grow in Christ-like humility, God-honoring humility. Lord, I pray for myself. Um, I am completely aware just how needy I am for you to come and speak through me right now, that I cannot preach any sermon, let alone a sermon on humility, 
without your spirit. So would you come now and speak through me? And for all of us, would you open our hearts to hear this, God? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about humility, and um, if you know me at all, you would rightly think, um, okay, humility, you must have it all together if you're going to preach on humility. And uh, no, you don't, Fudd, so who are you to preach on humility? You're right. Um, I am, just like you, I'll admit up front, a very proud man. I carry around on my back the big 55-gallon drum of humility or of pride. I got it wrong there. Pride all the time, walking around. Uh, And so... But the truth is, is that I want to be humble. And hopefully the truth for you would be that you want to be humble. So together, let's all say this. We are all proud people that want to be humble. And so by God's grace, we're going to approach the the text and and the overall Proverbs today desiring to be Christ-like, desiring to be humble. Um, Because none of us really is. Um, And here's the good news. Uh, Ray Ortland says, as you're approaching the scriptures, searching for humility, he says, everything God commands, he also gives. And he does it on terms of grace. And so the Lord is massively graceful to us to command from us humility, but also by the Spirit, give to us humility, and he does it by his grace. So as I said in the, uh, before I prayed, when we're talking about pursuing humility, we're talking about pursuing humility in a Christ-like manner. So non-Christians, people that aren't believers, can try to shed pride from their life and become more humble and just grow in their morality. And while that's good, and we certainly would commend everyone that does that, that's not necessarily what we're looking for. We want to grow in our humility, but not just as an end and of itself to say, I'm more humble now. I grew in my morality. Instead, we want to become more moral or become more humble for the purpose of becoming more Christ-like so that we don't become kind of the center, like, look at me, I'm moral. But instead, Christ becomes the center and we say, Jesus has made me like this, praise God, not me. So we're looking for Christ-like humility. A little bit of a, uh, a, a review from last week, if you weren't here on the book of Proverbs, just so you can kind of understand the outline of the way it works. The book of Proverbs uh, is really, it's 31 chapters, so it's perfect for every month. If you don't know what to read that day, what's today's date? Oh, it's the, I don't even know what today's date is, the 13th, I think. Um, I'll read Proverbs 13. So you always can read a proverb every month. Um, You know, I guess 30 and 31 get shortchanged by the end of the year, but anyway, um, and 29. But my whole point is, the Proverbs are easy to remember to read, but here's the outline. Um, chapters 1 through 9, which are unique to the rest. Chapters 1 through 9 are the introduction. Most of us, if you've ever read the Proverbs, find chapters 1 through 9 easy to read because the sentences actually go together in actually one kind of coherent thought. And so chapters 1 through 9, I can understand that. They actually paragraphs and there's a point to it. And then when I get to chapter 10, it's like, here's something about marriage. Here's something about being lazy. Here's something about a wife. Here's something about, you know, whatever. It's just humility. So it's kind of like one little sentence and you keep reading these and you're like, well, these are like, you know, random tweets from God that don't stand, you know, there's no connecting thought. And so I like reading chapters 1 through 9, not 10 through at least 29 because 30 and 31 are kind of a little bit different. Um, Well, here's the outline of the book, actually. Chapters 1 through 9 are the introduction. All of that coherently easy to read chapters 1 through 9 is actually making the case for you to read chapters 10 through 29. So 
All of this in chapter 1 through 9, which we love, is actually motivating you to receive with eagerness the teachings through chapters 10 through 30. So chapters, after you get to chapters 10 through 22, that's, pro, that's the Solomon's Proverbs. He wrote that. After uh, Solomon's Proverbs are 22 to 24, he didn't write 22 through 24. So Solomon's mind's, you know, kind of misleading. That's what we're all about. I'm just kidding. Um, and verse 25 through 29 is more Solomon's teachings. And then when you get to 30 and 31, they're a little bit different. Those are the words of Agur and the words of Lemuel. Proverbs 31, of course, is uh, an oracle from Lemuel that his mother taught him. And he tells him all about women, which we're going to actually preach the fifth week of this series. This is the second. We're going to preach on Proverbs 31. So um, we invite you all to make sure you're here for uh, the day we actually figure out women. So um, I'm just kidding. So the, uh, the last thing is this. When we're looking at a review on Proverbs, uh, here's kind of the, the big picture. There's, there's a couple ways, to, I think, to think of it. Um, Jeff Vanderstelt has some insight. This is really good. He said, the Proverbs 31 describe, or Proverbs, I should say, describe three people. They're the, the simple person, and it's telling the simple, hey, come get wisdom. It's the w- wise person, and it's saying, hey, wise person, come get more wisdom. Or it's the fool, and the fool says, I don't need any wisdom. That's kind of... The summary of the Proverbs. Here's another way to think about it. Um, The world, this is another way to think about the Proverbs. The world says, live and learn. I I live and I learn. But the Proverbs say, learn and then live. The opposite. The Proverbs tell us to learn and then live. So this book invites you in. It begs you to keep coming in and learn first in order that you may go live a God-honoring life. So we're looking at um, humility. We're looking at humility. Um, a couple Proverbs on humility, because as I said, Proverbs is kind of one-sentence statements, and they don't necessarily kind of flow together. So here's some Proverbs from chapter 15, 18, 8, 11, 16, on, on, on different things, different Proverbs written on humility. Um, Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So those are some ideas about humility, but conversely, it also speaks about pride, kind of the the opposite of humility. This is the warnings on pride when it talks about humility and pride in in, in the Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So we know that the Lord hates pride. Therefore, he loves humility. When pride comes, then disgrace comes. But with the humble is wisdom. So disgrace comes in pride. Humility shows wisdom. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So if we pursue pride, destruction will come to us. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant. Haughty men who acts with arrogant pride. One's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit or humble will obtain honor. So these are some, some proverbs. I mean, there's lots we can read, but these are some proverbs on, on humility or, or pride. And as we read these, the Bible is beckoning you in. It's, it's, it's begging you, say, come in and receive these teachings. Now, now here's the tricky part. Um, the ability to hear this and say, okay, I want to grow in that. I want to grow in my holiness. I want to grow in humility. I want to grow in Christ-likeness. I want to be sanctified. That just means become more, more like Jesus. I want to be open to that change. It requires humility for us to say yes. 
So it's beckoning you in saying, be humble and receive this teaching. And it requires humility as the Holy Spirit kind of presses in on your heart and says, this particular things need to change. We also have to have our opening requirement of humility to even say, you know what? You're right. Bible, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Um, I am in need to grow in that. So automatically, as the Lord starts calling you in and showing you places that you're prideful, don't. Don't put up a big stone wall and say, that's not me, that's my neighbor. I'm glad he or she's listening. Instead, open your mind and heart and have this transparent heart, have this open humbleness about you to say, yes, I do need to listen to this. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take some of the uh, Proverbs that talk about humility and we're gonna kind of look at them. And as I've put them together this week, there's, there's four little kind of teachings I want you to know as I've put them all together. Um, the first thing is this. All right, hopefully we've come to the point where we've said, Okay, yes, I agree. Humility is a requirement of a Christian. I do, I do agree with that FUD, intellectually. I'm not sure whether I'm ready to sign up on the pursuit of that, but I do agree with that. So hopefully you're there with that point. Let me, let me just say, first thing then, if we're going to say yes, I, I agree with that, I would say the Lord's inviting you into this first thing. The fear of the Lord leads us to, to humility. So if we're going to be on the pursuit of humility, we need to recognize that the Lord has said, okay, the fear of the Lord is uh, what's required to humility. A, a long time when I was growing up, you know, whenever, when you're younger, you hear the fear of the Lord, and I automatically, especially in America, you know, with Halloween, I always just kind of equate the fear of the Lord as like being scared of God. I need to be scared of him, like I'm scared when I walk around at Halloween and somebody's gonna jump out and scare me, or if you go to see a scary movie and all of a sudden it's like, rah, like I can scare you, like the Lord's supposed to just be ever fearful that he's gonna jump around and like, that's not what we mean when we say the fear of the Lord. So erase, you know, those scary movies in your head. That's not what we mean. So we know that we're supposed to fear the Lord in order to have humility. Let's, let's, let's talk about the fear of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the theme verse of the entire book of Proverbs, Proverbs 1-7, talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in, in all of chapters 1 through 9, where they're beckoning you in, hey, fool, come be wise, come be wise, come be wise. The whole chapters 1 through 9 is basically saying that to you. It's telling you the fear of the Lord is required then to be able to understand Proverbs 9.10 as he ends kind of the uh, introduction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is, is insight. So we see here that it's absolutely imperative that we fear the Lord. So then what does that mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Let, Let me just brass tax it and make it as simple as possible. Fearing the Lord simply just means this. Jesus comes first, and I come second. That's what it means to fear the Lord. If we're just going to make it really simple for us all, it means Jesus comes first, not me. In all things, in all my life, Jesus comes first, not me. So if I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to pursue humility, I'm saying the fear of the Lord is required for you to lead, that's going to lead to humility. That means if I'm going to be a humble person, Jesus comes first, not me, and that helps me be a humble person. That helps me understand what God's requiring then if I'm going to be humble. The implications of us fearing the Lord leads us to humility. But I would say, I would submit to you, the implications of us fearing the Lord lead to many, many things, not just being humble. Think of it this way. You've got this big, huge pond or or whatever. um, And 
you throw a pebble right in the middle and all of a sudden you've got these ripples that just go everywhere. Just think of the fear of the Lord that way. If you were to throw the fear of the Lord into your, right into the middle of your life and the ripple effects start going into all the nooks and crannies and crevices of your life, it would certainly affect your humility, but it would affect a lot of other things. We need for the humility of the first, or the humility of the Lord, or Jesus first mentality to kind of be thrown into the middle of our lives and then all of a sudden, it starts spreading out into all the cro- nooks and crevices of your life. It goes into the, uh, your desire to want to kill sin in your life. It goes out into the desire to put others first. It finds its way as it ripples out into finding your true source of joy in Christ and other things. And also humility. The ripple effects go into humility. So the fear of the Lord is required for us, or Jesus first is required for us to be humble people. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. When he talks about the fear of the Lord, this is quite insightful. You will not be the sort of person who follows God when no one is looking unless you are also the sort of person who fears God. Again, we're not talking about scared of God. We're talking about someone who loves God enough to say, Jesus first, not me. So who you are when no one's around, the kind of person you truly want to be is going to happen. It's going to happen whenever you say, Jesus first, not me, because I love him so much. He also says this, what you believe and how you live is largely shaped by whom you fear. So when Jesus is first, it largely shapes who you believe and what you put your trust in and how you live. So my fearing the Lord properly affects the way I kill sin and the way I put others first and my ultimate source of joy and also humility. And the moment we begin esteeming Christ instead of esteeming ourselves, which is what we mean by not being prideful and being humble. The moment we begin esteeming Christ, we begin to walk down this path of fearing the Lord and becoming more humble. Now, here's the tricky part. At least, the God, Jesus has been gracious enough and to, to reveal this to me. Because I'm not, not a humble man, I'm a proud man, as, as graciously as the Lord will allow me, pursuing humility. This is what I've noticed. As I start trying to walk down that path, all of a sudden, brand new things are revealed to me about myself. Like, I like the spotlight. I like for people to think I'm awesome. I like, I have this kind of growing lust in my heart. As I'm pursuing humility, I have a growing lust in my heart to be noticed. I'm like, wait a second, is this working? Am I doing this wrong? Am I walking the wrong way? Because I'm trying to pursue humility, and as I pursue humility, what I notice is the great desire to want to be noticed. What I, want, what I notice in my heart is me trying to take Jesus down and me be up there. I notice that if I don't get this, I have a growing self-pity, like, why didn't anybody notice that I did that? How come they don't see the hard work I do? Same thing with you, I'm, I'm imagining. How come whenever I work real hard, no one notices. No one pats me on the back and says, you know what, you're just, you're just awesome. You know what, let me lift you up and blow your head up and just tell you how great you are. No one does that. And I kind of have this self-focused inner narrative going on in my head where I wonder why they don't notice it. it. Maybe I'm not doing it right. I wonder if I could do it better. Maybe I should say something. You know, so we have this, right? And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, here's the tricky part. If I'm walking down the path of humility, if I'm walking down pursuing by God's grace humility instead of being prideful, how come I start noticing all these things? And I think, I must not be doing this right. I must be becoming less humble rather than more. Is this working? 
And I would say, yes, it's working. The fact that I am noticing that shows that it's working. How I react in that moment can, can reveal whether I'm actually on the path truly. But here's what's going to happen for us all. As we walk down the path of pursuing humility, you will actually notice a, an inclination in your heart to want to have the spotlight instead of Jesus. And that means it is working. Here's what Ray Ortland says. It's really good. Here's the good news. We don't come to Christ because we're humble. We come to Christ because we're proud. And he receives us and loves us and helps us in our pride. So as all of us, as our prideful hearts are being revealed to us, as we say, yes, I want to pursue humility, and all of a sudden it's exposed that we're far more prideful than we ever could have conceived, the answer is, yes, of course it's working. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. We'll start receiving spiritual life. By that I mean growing in our Christ-likeness, more life being found in Christ. We've already been saved, but now we're finding an ever-growing life in Christ. Christ is always continually calling us to himself and saying, every moment as you are, come to me. As prideful as you are right now, resist that pride and come to me. Let your heart be melted by my grace. Don't let your prideful heart stop you. Instead, keep coming, and as you come, you're going to say, oh, this hurts even more, and you're going to be saying, yes, now let my grace melt that pride and come to me. And you don't come to Christ because you're humble. You come to Christ because you're proud, and then he loves you and helps you become more humble. And when he's calling at you, you say, hmm, Christ is far more forgiving than I could ever have imagined. I'm a mess And as I'm a mess and I come to him, I realize the old hymn, I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. I'm not going to sing it. I'm I'm feeling it, but I'm not going to. It's a good hymn. It's a real good hymn. Uh, Chris Tomlin redid it if you like the the new versions. So anyway, um, we'll see how much of a mess we are and we'll find that that's true. Man, I need Christ every, every minute, every hour. So... So what we've seen so far about humility is if we're going to pursue humility, first thing that's required is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, or simply, Jesus first, not me. Jesus first, not me. Now, hopefully I've persuaded you some to say, okay, yes, I want humility, but why does this really matter? Is this actually necessary in my life? If, if I'm going to pursue humility, I, I want to know that it's actually necessary in my life that I'm going to pursue humility. Maybe it's not necessary. Maybe I can walk down the rest of my life and not worry about it. Here's some cautions from the Bible. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the second thing is that Jesus says humility absolutely matters. Number two, humility absolutely matters. And then here's why. Here's the negative things that happen if you don't pursue it. And here's the positive things that happen if you do. They're all from the Proverbs. Although we could, we could expand it out to the entire Bible and find plenty. So from the Proverbs... Humility matters, and here's why. Here's what happens if you don't pursue humility. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So as we hear these Proverbs, we're going to see the negative effects of not pursuing this means calamity, destruction. So hopefully I've convinced you, yes, I want to pursue it. What if I don't? Well, that means calamity and destruction will befall you in life. 
Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Here's another one. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. That destruction is literally like the picture of a shattered bone. We're watching football right now. It's finally back in. Praise the Lord, it's fall, football's back in, right? And so we finally are seeing big collisions all the time, right? Bang, like, we, for some reason, when, just think of like whenever, we, I don't know why, but we love, they see that smash and like, oh, his arm fell apart. Look, at shattered. I don't want to see it. You know, they're showing the little replay of it, like waving in the wind. You're like, oh, I don't, oh, but you still watch it, right? Just think of that collision where the bone shatters whenever someone nails somebody and all of a sudden it's saying, that's your life. That's going to be your life. If you walk through life, Without any concern towards these things, eventually pride goes before destruction. If I am going to be prideful, destruction, shattered life, shattered bone is what's going to befall me. That's what my life will happen. And a haughty spirit before the fall. So it's absolutely crucial that we pursue because pride goes before destruction. Conversely, then we would imagine humility leads to something else. We'll get to that. Um, Another one. Those that are clean in their own eyes. There are those that are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. So if we're clean in our own eyes, we are not clean um, truly. We're not washed of of our sin. There's a way that seems right to man, but in its end leads to death. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. The Lord is the determining factor on these things. So... Jesus is insisting that humility matters. Why? Because for those that don't pursue it have destruction. And in their own eyes, they think they're fine, but they're not, not right. Th- that way leads to death. The Lord weighs what's these things, and it le- leads to eventual calamity and eventual, eventual destruction. So if we don't walk down the path of humility, that's what's on our side. So now that everybody's properly like sad, let me give you the best news, right? Here's the best news, though. Here's what the Bible does say. The positive effects of humility. The fear of the Lord, this is Proverbs 15, 33. um, The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility. Humility comes before honor. Now that's key. Humility becomes before honor. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But what is the positive thing that happens? Humility comes before what? Honor. Now, if I were just to throw it out to you, if I didn't know you, and let's say you weren't even a Christian, and I would say, okay, in your life, if I were to give you a one-word summary of your life, and you have to choose one or the other, and I said, destruction or honor, <laughs> which one would you say? No one's here going to say, destruction, please. That's what I want for my life. Like, we're all going to say, honor. That sounds much better than destruction. So what we're having is an invitation into humility, and the proverbial, uh, the proverbial kind of warning of where you can have destruction or you can have honor. So the positive side, fear of the Lord is an instruction to wisdom. Humility comes before honor. So humility first, then honor. Same kind of thing. Before destruction, this is Proverbs 8, 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So twice now in the Proverbs has told us the positive effects of pursuing humility is honor. But humility comes first. Another one, Proverbs 29. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit or humble will obtain honor. So the Proverbs are promising you not pursuing humility, calamity and destruction. Pursuing humility, you will receive honor. Now, if, you're, if you've been in church for any time and is Christ-focused and is Christ-centered as churches try to, try to tell you, you know maybe red flags are going up. Wait, 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 wait. 
Who am I to receive honor? Jesus gets all the honor. I'm, you know, I'm here underneath the ground. I'm, like, I'm the worm underneath the ground, and Jesus is infinity above. I'm the worm, and Jesus is awesome. He's supposed to get all the honor. I'm not supposed to get in honor. There's no place in heaven in Revelation where you're like, wait a second, honor for you? Back to Jesus. Like, that doesn't happen. Why are you saying I'm supposed to receive honor? What does that mean? Honor for me. All right, let's, let's understand what we say, because I, that's biblical, right? Jesus is farly exalted over us, greatly exalted over us. We're just... You know, dust, as it says in Genesis. But on the other side, there is the other side. Let's, let's remember, let's let the Bible talk about us the way it wants to talk about us. There is a sense in which man will be honored. Not, not over Christ, not like to the neglect of Christ's glory, but in a sense, yes. So hear this amazing grace that the Lord's going to give you when he talks about honor. But don't forget this. Humility comes before honor. In God's economy, it's set up that humility comes first, then honor. And all of us want to skip the humility part and go right to the honor. No humble. Yeah, I just want to go straight to the honor part. But the Bible's telling us that we have to be humbled first, and then we'll receive honor. So what do we mean when we say, when we say honor? This is what it is. And I'm not overstating this in the least bit. Honor that we will receive is literally the pinnacle, the climax of the entire gospel. It's the entire tip top of the gospel of the good news of Jesus. So what do I mean by that? Okay, the gospel is this. You're far more sinfully than you could ever imagine. You, you and I are wretched sinners. However, as wretched as we are that we may not even understand, God is far more perfect and holy than we could ever conceive and far more loving and conceive, uh, merciful and forgiving than we could ever imagine. So we have us and we have God. We deserve punishment for that. And God is merciful. Christ is perfect. When he came, he lived the absolute perfect life. Therefore, he deserves all the honor. He deserves all the glory. He doesn't have to receive any wrath of God or anger because he lived perfectly. And then there's us. And we receive the opposite of all those things. That's what we deserve. But Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. But when he came, he went to the cross and died the death. So we deserve to die and be put to death. And what Christ did is that I'm going to come over here and I'm going to stand before that. And all the wrath that you deserve, I'm going to take it for you. All the wrath that you rightly should get from me, death, destruction, I'm going to take it. And now you don't have to. And so since I've come over here, you actually get to come over here on, on this side. So now all you're going to do since I took the wrath is you're going to get forgiveness, holiness, right relationship with God. It's called, Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. This is the gospel. God gets, Jesus gets all of the punishment for us. We get forgiveness now. This is the gospel. So when we talk about gospel or being saved, there's kind of a... Uh, a big idea. It doesn't just mean, and perhaps you grew up, if you grew up in a Baptist church, um, which, you know, I grew up in, you, you grew up in a, a, a scenario of, all right, when you're a kid, we're going to have a VBS where we're just going to scare you. Like, we're just going to freak you out and get you so scared of hell. We're going to tell you all the bad passages. And at the very end, we're going to say, you don't want to go to hell, right? <laughs> if you don't, ask Jesus in your heart, and then everything's good. And you're like, well, I certainly don't want hell, so yes, Jesus. Um, so, you kind of get scared into hell, away from hell into heaven. You say, that's what I want. And so that certainly works. It worked for me. That's how I was actually saved. Um, 
but maybe there's a better way. That's a, a whole separate issue. But my whole point is that moment that you ask Christ in your heart, that moment that it happens, prior to that, something happened called regeneration. That regeneration is just God opening up your heart to say, huh, I'm a mess. Jesus is beautiful. I think I want Jesus. And then the moment that you say, yes, forgive me, the asking Jesus in your heart, pray to receive Christ, I confess that I'm a sinner, I need you, Jesus, that moment is where you can picture this massive courtroom, God bangs down the gavel, and he looks right at you, and you're as guilty as can be, and he says, you're innocent. And you're like, what? How did you just declare me innocent? And he brings his son out behind, and he goes, because he's going to go and take all your punishment. You're free to go. Free in Christ, no less. You're free in Christ to go live the life. He's going to take the sentence. That, that occurrence, it's instantaneous, that declaration of God is called justification. This is all salvation, regeneration, justification. After this, from that moment where you're free in Christ to go live, in Christ, that's important, now the rest of my life I'm going to pursue Christ's likeness. I'm so thankful what he's done. All I want to do is talk about the guy that took my punishment. All I want to do is tell that he can take your punishment too, and I want to give glory to him. And as I walk through life, I want to live like him. I want to become like him. Everything about me, until I die, I want to be like him. The big fancy term, sanctification, that is still salvation. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, all that is salvation. But then we get to this last part, and this is what we're talking about, the pinnacle of, of, of the gospel. The moment you die, we all go to heaven, or when Christ comes back, we live with him forever. Something happens. The Bible tells us that we're glorified. This is the honor that we're talking about. It's whenever we're made to be like Christ. The glorification of our bodies is whenever this sinful, wretched body is no longer sinful and wretched, but instead, it's made to be like Christ's. So Christ still gets all the glory, but now that I'm in heaven, I no longer sin, and now I'm glorified, and that's the honor that we're talking about. The honor that we're going to receive on this pursuit of humility is the pinnacle of the gospel. The Bible says it this way. Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means those that became Christians are conformed to Jesus' image in order that we might be, don't miss this, the firstborn among many brothers. So when we're in heaven, it's still all about Jesus. We're just the firstborn among many brothers. We're the brothers and sisters made to be like our oldest brother. He gets all the glory still. And here's the, here's the chain, if you will, of, of, of links the way it happens. And those whom he pre- predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's what we're talking about this courtroom when you ask Jesus in your heart. You become a believer. And those whom he gl- justified, he also glorified. That's the eventual honor that happens after the humility. This pursuit of humility during sanctification, we all will receive this honor that's promised to us. And then it, it, Paul ends this little, this little chain with this statement. It's so beautiful. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is nobody. The answer is nobody. The surprising way that Jesus gets us to the honor of glorification is humility. The surprising way that Jesus will eventually get you to honor or glorification 
is humility. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. It's amazing. It's amazing what he's promising us. Ray Ortland writes this. He says, here's a prayer that God will never refuse. Lord, keep me in your humility. Keep me down low before you where I belong. Humility is the safest place for every one of us. Humility matters because it is the safest place for us. And it matters because it doesn't bring destruction, but instead one day brings for us the pinnacle of the gospel, glorification or honor that he gives to us. That's why the Bible says to us in Matthew, where Jesus is speaking in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will one day be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will one day be exalted. Proverbs, I'm sorry, James 4, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So hopefully thus far, you've said, okay, you've convinced me. I'm going to fear the Lord. It it will be the the beginning stage for me to pursue humility. And I agree that I want to pursue humility because if I'm given the two options of destruction and honor, I pick honor, Fudd. You got me. All right, so here we are at this stage three, if you will, and we're all saying, all right, I'm going to pursue humility. I think that's what the Lord wants. It's not just what you're trying to convince me to do, Fudd, because that's really inconsequential if you think it's what I say. I say. It's, it's what Jesus says. So we're all there saying, yes, I'm going to do it. How then should it look? What does the pursuing of humility in my life look like? Um, let, me, let me offer out, this is not on the, on, the, on the screen here, kind of three things. This, this is from Ray Ortland. He says, these are three things that the Proverbs show us on how one who's pursuing humility, their life ought to look. Your life ought to look like these particular three things if you're going to actually pursue humility in your life. Um, The first one is this. This is what he says. Those people revere the word of God. Those people revere the word of God. Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever despises the word brings destruction, which we've already seen is if you don't pursue humility. But he who reveres the commandments or reveres the word will be rewarded. So if you're saying, yes, I'm going to do the hard work then of pursuing, by God's grace, humility. He's telling you the first thing is you need to revere the word. Not over Jesus, but revere the word of God in order to know Christ better. So this book is essential. It's not my roadmap. It's the way I see Jesus. And so it's essential that I will hold it up and I will be in it every day in order that I can see Christ, know the gospel, and pursue humility with everything inside of me. The second thing is, the first thing is they revere the word of God. The second is they listen to life-giving reproof. Reproof is just the biblical word for correction. Who loves correction? Raise your hand. No one, right? I lo- Correct me all the time, Fudd. Point out my mistakes. Mmm, love that. No, no one eats that up, right? No one thinks, you know what I want? I need for someone to just correct me all the time. I, I would love that. Just follow me around. Proverbs fifteen thirty one. The ear that listens, doesn't just hear, but listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So life-giving proof. Life-giving reproof. Um, second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tell us that the word is profitable for reproof or profitable for correction. So the, the, the giving of correction should always be word-centered. Hence, number one, they revere the word of God. So let's just ask this question. This is maybe the, the easiest way to get to this, this point. Who 
in your life right now, who in your life has the right to come give you life-giving reproof? The Bible's saying that reproof, biblical correction, is life-giving. It may be, at the very beginning, anger-provoking, but it's still life-giving. So when my wife comes to me and points out something, yes, it's anger-provoking, and the first thing is, oh, thanks for pointing that out. Since we're on that right now, I've got about five things too. Um, But the truth is, it's life-giving. Who in your life right now has the right to give you life-giving correction? Not correction, life-giving correction. Centered in on the word of God. Why doesn't someone? They should. Invite someone in. And put a little parentheses. Of course you trust them. You're not doing a stranger, right? Of course you trust them. Who has that right? You must give someone this right. So the first one, they revere the word of God. We're gonna pursue humility. I'm gonna do the hard work of pursuing humility. I'm going to absolutely revere the word of God. The second thing, I'm gonna listen to life-giving reproof. The, sec- the third one is this. They also, the way that they live is they confess and forsake their sin. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Whoever keeps his sins hidden will not prosper conversely but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy the same thing said in James 5 says it this way therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous man a righteous person has great power in its working this one's difficult I understand like nobody here wants to just tell other people their sins so yes yeah, the same little pi- parentheses to someone you trust to someone you love to someone that you know that loves you it's not random strangers that you're walking to you're not finding your waitress at lunch and confessing your sins right it's somebody you know somebody you love someone you know that loves you but it's absolutely crucial that you have someone that you confess your sins to in the same way that you have to have someone who has the right to give you life-giving proof who is the person hopefully in the church that you also can trust that you're doing this, for, doing this with, that you're letting them into your life, letting them see in your life, and you're going to them and you're saying, these are the things happening in my life. These three particular things, if you're saying, I'm going to be on the road to humility, I want to do it, these three things ought to be happening in your life. You revere the word of God. You are having someone giving you life-giving correction, and you have someone that you're confessing and forsaking your sin to. Um, Whenever I moved to the state of North Carolina, they require a driver's test. So I, when I went to seminary in 2001, um, just like when I was 15, I had to go take the written test. When moved up to North Carolina, I had to take the written test again. Uh, it had been a while since I had done it, and I was a little bit nervous. Someone in our household had to take that test twice, but I'm not going to tell you who because I like to eat. Um, but whenever we, were, we went up there, we had to take the test. And so as we're sitting there, I was sitting there the second time in the DMV. And this particular time, I didn't have to take the test because 
Um, I had already passed it. But anyway, so we're sitting there, and as I'm sitting there, you know, they have the little, the little cubbyhole computer things, and, you know, you can pull up your little chair to this big, massive, only the DMV, only our government has computers that look like they were made in, like, 1955. They're as big as this wall, right? Uh, and so it's massive, and this guy's sitting here, um, and I'm sitting there, and all the people are taking their tests, and I'm just kind of like, DMV, here we are, you know. It's always great to be at the DMV. Um, and there was this man, he was like 55 years old, I'll never forget, he had this long, dangly down lightning earring and had his hair all colored, you know, and I'm thinking, you're 55. Anyway, so that's just no, neither here nor there. So as he's taking this test, I'm noticing in his, in his in, if your dad or uncle has earrings and colored hair at 55, much apologies. So as he's sitting here, he's taking the test and he keeps looking down in his lap and looking up and I see him like, do that, it's right here, and I'm looking, and he's got like a booklet in his, in his lap, he's got... He's got the whole book in his lap. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't good. If this man can't pass a test that 15-year-olds are required to pass, I don't want him on my roads. I don't want him on my roads. I don't want him here. So, you know, you can make fun of me all you want, but I tattletailed. I went over to the lady, and I was like, that dude over there is cheating. You know, lightning bolt. He's cheating. Go, go over there. And this is what she does. She walks over to him, and I'm expecting, like, her just to say, you're done, unplug it. No, 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 she just takes the book from him and walks away. And I'm thinking, well, I guess that'll work. If he can't have the book, certainly he's gonna fail. My whole point is this, time to take the test. What does this man do? For him, shortcut, cheat sheets. I'm willing to get something, but I'm willing to try to cheat in order to get it. The shortcut Cliff Notes version. And here's the deal. Many of us think that pursuing Christ-likeness pursuing holiness, that we can come to it and have the little cheat sheet, shortcut, get it done that kind of way. And this invitation into pursuing holiness is not like that. You must be willing to do the hard work of pursuing humility. There's no shortcut here. There's no halfway doing this. It's with everything inside of you, revealing the word of God and and allowing life proof, life-giving proof to come into you and saying, yes, these are my sins and I lay them bare. I am not, I am not a humble man, but I am proud, but instead I want to. And there's no half-baked, halfway cheat sheet way to do this. Instead, the Lord's beckoning you to say, yes, I'm willing to do the hard work. I'm willing to do the hard work. Here's the dangers. Jonathan Edwards in this work called The Thoughts on Revival. Um, in the first great awakening, people were, the revival were everywhere. And Edwards is just a massive intellectual. And there was all these kind of like, in the first great awakening, people saying, fake, 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 fake. What do you think, Edwards? And he's like, smartest person in America that's probably ever lived. One of the greatest theologians and philosophers America has ever produced. What do you think? And he's so wise. He doesn't want to just fake, fake, fake it. You know, he wants to give some insights. And in that work called Thoughts on Revival, it's not too long, you should read it, he talks about the dangers of pride. He says, spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter, an air of contempt. But pure Christianity, humility, pure Christian humility, rather tends to either be silent about these problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others But humble Christian is most guarded about this. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is his own heart. That's pretty amazing. The most suspicious thing he is, is of his own heart. Because he knows he's pride. The proud person is apt 
to find other fault in other believers, but that they are low in grace and to be quick to note their deficiencies. The proud person is apt to find others in, in other believers that they are low in grace and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is concerned about that that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He is apt to esteem others better than himself. So there's a major danger if we, that was an accident. There's a huge danger if we don't pursue this, if we don't say I'm willing to do the hard work because the true thing is we should be suspicious of nothing else in the, in the entire world than of our own heart. So humility is not simple to attain. And you will never be 100% humble, but by God's grace, we must be willing to be people per, to pursue this, to revere God's word, listen to correction, and confess our sins, and do the hard work of seeking humility. The fourth thing is this, and I want to conclude with this, with number four. Um, Because pursuing humility is not pursuing a a concept. Pursuing humility is pursuing a person. Don't miss that. Humility is a concept. Pursuing humility is not pursuing a, a concept. Pursuing humility is pursuing a person who is humble. He's the only humble person. Therefore, we must look to the personification. That just means Jesus personified humility and perfection of humility, Christ. So as we pursue humility, and this is what makes it Christian, not just advice, but this is what makes pursuing humility Christian, is that we pursue Christ, who is the only person that ever was humble, and he makes us humble. So as I read Proverbs 29, 23 at one point today, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. That's what's true of us. I think it's interesting if we... Instead, take ourselves out of that and put in Jesus. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit, as Matthew 11 says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and I am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. One who is lowly in spirit, that's Jesus, he will also obtain honor. Jesus is the one who is lowly in spirit and because of him, he obtained honor. And that's described for us in Philippians 2. So, as we've talked about man being... Um, honored, and as we talked about us being low, we, we need to realize that when, before the incarnation, before Jesus was born, Jesus was already still alive, right? He's always been alive. He's God, and he lived in heaven. And then one day, Jesus was obedient to the Father's will, and he entered into human history 2,000 years ago and became no longer just God, but the God-man, He became both, 100% God and 100% man. Before that, he was only just 100% God. Whenever he was born, he entered into human history. He was God because he was always outside of time. And now, he entered into time as the God-man. And sometimes we think, you know, God became man. That's kind of a lateral move. God became man. God becoming man is not a lateral move. God becoming man is an extreme step down. And Paul, in the book of Philippians, is talking about this massive step down, the humility that Christ must have had to be willing to take this step down must just be breathtaking. This is what Paul's saying. And as he's talking about that, he says, in the same way that Jesus is humble, which, I mean, that's a massive step down to, to be, become man, you should be humble. And then he, he takes it one step further about Jesus' humility. Not only is it humble for Jesus to come all the way down and become man, 
But then there's this plan that he has to live out, which is now that you're man, this is what I want you to do. God says, I want you to go to the cross and die for everybody. You're going to live a perfect life. You don't deserve to die, but you're going to go die for everybody, and they're going to receive forgiveness. What kind of humility is necessary for someone to become man and then go die who's perfect and doesn't deserve death? Paul's talking about that, and he says this. Let each one of yourselves not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We'll always look to our own interests, but we shouldn't just look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Have Circle verse 5 in Philippians 2. It's unbelievable if you think about it. Have this mind among yourselves, don't miss this, which is yours. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Talking about humility. It's not can be yours. It's not might be yours. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can pursue holiness. It is yours. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't want to hold on to just deity but emptied himself. This is the the Greek word kenosis. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He became a servant and lowered himself down to become the God-man. Not only that, and being found in human form as the God-man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humility. And what comes after humility? Humility comes before honor. And this is, this next three verses, is the description of the honor that Jesus, we've talked about our honor, eventual glorification. This is the honor that Jesus gets. Remember, this is all couched in, we must look to the personification perfection of Jesus. Just think of this. Close your eyes if you need to and let your mind run wild what this honor must look like in heaven right now. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will buckle and bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue that's every person ever every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father just imagine the honor that Christ is receiving It's unbelievable. Ray Ortland summarizes by saying, humility began in heaven. We didn't invent it. The Son of God revealed it to us by the incarnation. We lift ourselves up. The Son of God stepped down. That's humble. Nothing is too good for us. Nothing was too low for the Son of God. We make ourselves big deals. The Son of God made himself nothing. We measure out our obedience one inch at a time just to keep control. The Son of God became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. It's astounding. So because of that, here's the question for every single one of us. What self-humbling, Christ-exalting, God-entrenched, wrist taking step are you willing to make then right now on the path towards pursuing humility?
It's risky, sure. But don't miss this. Take the risk always because the Lord is always faithful to keep his promises. So what is it? What is it that he needs, that he's pointing to right now where you're saying, that's it, I need to change. Or yes, I need to be more humble about that. What's the big, huge wall of pride that's keeping you from becoming more Christ-like? Perhaps you don't know Jesus. And we talked about the great exchange. Right now, that needs to happen in your life. You've heard this fact that a man came who's perfect, that lived a perfect life and died for you. And you realize that you're not perfect and you've never been forgiven. I'm saying, let the great exchange happen. Confess your sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Become a Christian today. Put your faith in him. And that's what needs to happen with you. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna go into a time where we celebrate what Christ has done for us in the Lord's Supper. I'm gonna pray and then I'll explain the Lord's Supper to us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time where we can come together and study your word and have this great example of humility given to us, explained to us, shown to us of what Christ has done for us. God, and I pray as proud people that we would pursue humility, we would pursue Christ for the glory of Christ and not for ourselves. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper, as we receive life from you. Not not salvific, we don't get saved by taking the Lord's Supper, but certainly we receive grace and blessing. Be with us now as we do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.